I'm Imtiaz Kayab, and you're listening to The Take, where every week we look at one story at a time, fueled by Al Jazeera's journalism. The story this week is Gaza, one of three pockets of Palestinian territory occupied by Israel. You probably heard a lot about protests there this spring. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says that at least 550 people have been injured. The demonstrators are marking Land Day, an annual protest against Israel's occupation and seizure of Palestinian territory. Israeli soldiers open fire. Sharpshooters were deployed. But Palestinians, frustrated by the endless siege they live under, were undeterred. At the moment, so this death toll is rising, and it's certainly in line of what we've been seeing throughout the day here, an incredibly high amount of live fire, sniper fire being used. And then, the world moved on. But those protests haven't stopped. And it's a story we've been wanting to tackle since we launched the show 10 weeks ago. Where am I finding you right now? I am in the editing suite of The Office with Samir. Uh, he says hello. Hello, Samir. Hello, 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 Mtiaz. How are you? I'm great, Samir. <laughs> Samir, our uh, legendary cameraman from Jerusalem, who's seen pretty much everything, and also held my hand for two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you were thrown in at the deep end. You landed as we were in a fully fledged uh, conflict. I was uh, I was in Gaza. Samir and I actually went in on day one. Stephanie Decker is a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera English, who covers the Middle East. There's something I want to play for you first. Uh, take a listen. They do this every Friday before the, the Great March of Return, as it's called, calling people to go to the fence uh, to protest. And this is actually announcing the 38th Friday, which we've just had. So it gives you an indication just how long uh, these border protests uh, have, have been going on. So this is basically heard over the loudspeakers in Gaza, uh, calling for people on Friday, after Friday prayers, to gather at the fence. So, about the people of Gaza. There are nearly two million of them. Most of them are either refugees or their descendants. That's what the March of Return is all about. Pretty much all Palestinians claim their right to return to the homes they were kicked out of when Israel was created in 1948. The scene is near Jericho, one of the camps for Arab refugees. The story is one of destitution. For these people, as the result of the war in Palestine, have either fled or been expelled from their homes and their livelihood. But Gaza is a special case. First of all, it's tiny, about 40 kilometers long along the eastern Mediterranean. It's narrow. You could walk across it in two hours. It's also run by Hamas, which many countries consider a terrorist group, none more than Israel. In Gaza, people return to the streets after a violent week with Hamas taking control. Hamas came to power more than 10 years ago, and the Israeli government imposed a blockade on the Strip shortly after. Many people here have never experienced what you can call basic freedom permission to come and go into Israel, or even Egypt, which is to the south, has always been hard to get. Fuel and medicine are in short supply, and most of the water is unsafe to drink. Three successive wars between the Israeli military and Hamas have left parts of the cities here in ruins. People are desperately poor, and as ever, 
they're trapped. If you ask me to describe what Gaza looks like, you know, you it's in, it's weird, and I still find it weird. However, many times I've been there, is you come from, you know, Israel. You know, you've got gas stations, you've got cafes, you've got cascading Rugenvilia, and you get to the Eris crossing, which is the 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 crossing controlled by Israel. And there's massive walls, and there's intercoms that people speak to you through glass, and then you go through this sort of uh, long gray corridor until you get to the outside, and you go through these turnstiles. And every time, you know, there's sort of people that talk to you through an intercom, and then you get out, and then it's this long cage walk um, down into Gaza, and it's a completely different landscape you know all of a sudden you you've got donkey carts with little kids on them uh you know the buildings are all sort of gray because they're not painted the electricity wires cover the sky and hang down it's a it's a completely different world and it's man-made right so i think that's always a very difficult thing to come to terms with Stephanie's been in and out of Gaza all year, reporting on the protests and what life is like there right now. And she did this story back in May, at the height of the protests at the fence, that gets to the heart of why the right of return is so important to Palestinians. It starts with a man looking at a picture of his family's house, a house they had to flee 70 years ago. And how does it make you feel when you look at that picture? Do you feel anything or is it just part of history? It's not history, it's our life. Again, until now, we we believe and we will believe, and other kids يعني, will will believe that we belong to this uh, area, to this uh, point. My father. Well, uh, this is Dolph, who's uh, he's a pharmacist, uh, lives in Gaza, and um, it's a story because as we're talking about those protests, they were supposed to culminate in the in the Nakba, right, as you said. But we wanted to explain to people what it meant for Palestinians. So we sort of brainstormed with our team and I, when he had a house in, in um, Ashkelon, which is literally, you can see it from Gaza. South of the mosque. So his family home uh, that his grandparents and parents had lived in um, was there. And he hadn't gone back, I can't remember the exact, but I think oh, for over 20 years. Um, and he wasn't allowed to leave Gaza. So what we decided to do was uh, we, he drew us a map uh, and we said, well, we're going to go find it. And we finally found his house and it was overgrown and it was abandoned. And, um, uh, you know, and when he realized it was it, well, you know, he, he got, he's a grown man. He's, it takes a lot for him to cry, but he got very teary. This is the house. Yeah, this is the house. This is the house. I, I, I cannot explain what I'm feeling now. I feel very bad. When they talk about right of return, I think most Palestinians will tell you realistically they know it's not going to happen. But the fact that they had to leave their homes in the middle of the night of an advancing army, uh, you know, 70 years ago, leaving everything behind, thinking that one day they would come back and they never were allowed to. And many of these people ending up in Gaza um, it, it is something that is very difficult to, to let go of. And I think it's even a very difficult thing for you and I as outsiders to understand. Yeah. And even people like you and me didn't really see these fence protests coming. I mean, they started with this Facebook post by a guy in Gaza after the U.S. announced it was going to move its embassy to Jerusalem, you know, which is a big slap in the face to Palestinians. So it's about that and Nakba and the occupation. And the numbers are shocking. I mean, hundreds dead, thousands injured, and it's still going on. 
Absolutely. And I think also what was so, like you point out, so surprising to all of us is when you cover this story year in and year out, not much changes MTAs, right? Um, so you're covering, you know, whether it's on this end, it's it's settlement expansion, it's, it's, it's the removing of land, it's the frustrations of Gaza, it's the blockade. You know, it's almost like a thing, a story that repeats itself and nothing changes. So this visually was so very, very different. What do these protests look like? Certainly in the beginning, the numbers were huge. And we're talking tens of thousands of people um, that came to that fence. There were five different points. There are five different points along uh, the fence that people are gathering at. And that's literally what divides Gaza uh, from Israel. And in the beginning, the numbers were major. A lot of young men, for sure. But also you had young girls, you had families, you had, you know, elderly have particularly the young men, burning black tires. So it was this black, acrid smoke. Then you'd always have this pop of sniper fire, particularly in the beginning when the Israelis were clamping down very hard uh, on these protests. You'd constantly hear this crack, and it was just one shot. And then after a while, you'd hear another shot. And I remember we were always, you know, we were there doing lives and watching it. We were trying to figure out what the strategy was, you know, it wasn't just people being shot that went right up to the fence, you know, people were being shot in front of us, randomly. The Israeli army at some point was not holding back when it came to using live fire, um, you know, tear gas, which is almost like the lesser uh, of, of certainly what we saw, which was intense sniper fire being used on many of these days. See this little black drone come, and it was almost this sci-fi horror movie. You know, it sort of would come slowly all the way to the back. And some of these people at the back were just sort of standing around, and they would drop tear gas right at the back, just in an effort to disperse everyone. You know, they just wanted people away. Snipers and bombing and tanks against as a civilian people here in Gaza Strip. We we unarmed people. We happened to find this man. I think he was a teacher uh, who spoke English. Yes, this is Gaza. Look, look here. Look here, this is Gaza's. Yes, and this is aircraft against us. This is military. This is military against us. They, they shot fire against us. This is unhumanity. It's come from the drones, Amir. Can you get the drone? It's right here. And all of a sudden, and I had my back to where this was happening. He, and all of a sudden, so you hear him describe the drone as I was you know, describing to you earlier, had dropped the tear gas. So people started running towards us. Uh, and he was saying how, you know, he felt it was completely unacceptable. They were unarmed protesters and the, the military force that Israel was using uh, was simply not warranted. What was so striking about these protests was the use of live fire, was the use of sniper fire, and was the the deliberate targeting of protesters in their lower limbs uh, in a part of the world where medical treatment isn't often available, resulting in more often than not amputations. Was that striking to you as well? And you hit the nail on the head because in the beginning we were like, well, hold on, you know, why are they using so much live fire? Like the Israelis are, are masters of crowd control, right? They're experienced. They have the best technology, um, you know, tear gas, yes, stun grenades, sound bombs, skunk water. I mean, you look at the West Bank and the journalists there are used to pretty much everything, but the Israelis come out with skunk water, which is this 
foul-smelling water, which they spray, and it doesn't get off you. So this is something that I'm laughing, but it, you know, it's something that will have people scarper. And they weren't even using that, right? They started right away, like you say, with 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 very aggressive, deadly sniper fire. And I remember at some point coming out of Gaza and doing a story uh, from from Jerusalem, and I was asking exactly this: I was, you know, what kind of pressure is this putting? on the Israeli army because we were trying to figure out what are, what are the rules of engagement who are you shooting why are you it looked so random but i think the more people realize that the international media which you know doesn't pay much attention to gaza let's face it started taking note and they started seeing more and more foreign journalists at those protests uh, they thought you know we might be onto something in the sense that we might wake the world up again to what's happening to us here um, what they would do, which became a real issue for Israel, was was fl- flaming kites, right? So they would t- attach this sort of um, rag. I mean, it completely makeshift. I mean, incredible in terms of ingenuity, I guess, in a way you would you would have to say it. Um, and basically, they would launch these kites with these flaming tails over the border, and they would land in particularly a lot of Israeli agricultural fields. So this was something that was putting a huge amount of pressure on the government here as well, because these Israeli border communities were saying, what are you doing to stop this? You know, hectares and hectares and hectares of fields were being burnt. Um, people were trying to cross the fence, the Israelis would tell you, but, you know, from what we saw, I mean, we certainly did not see masses of people trying to, to break the fence. It was sort of like people just moving closer and closer to the front. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, it was something extraordinary, certainly in those days when, when it was at its, as you say, April, May, particularly the embassy day, when the US embassy moved to Jerusalem. I mean, it was quite extraordinary to see what happened. Last December, President Trump became the first world leader to recognize Jerusalem as our capital. And today, the United States of America is opening its embassy right here in Jerusalem. Rage on a day Palestinians have been dreading. Moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem has been condemned around the world since it was announced in December. Palestinians have been protesting in the thousands near Gaza's border with Israel. We were live roading Arizona and we were watching um, this, this scenario unfold, which was of intense sniper fire, and I will tell you, it did not stop all day long. Uh, And people were dropping all around us. Ambulances were picking them up, paramedics were picking them up on stretchers, some were being carried, uh, others were being put on the back of this horse and cart, which had been turned into a makeshift uh, ambulance, if you will. And then I remember uh, IFB, which is what we correspondents have in our ear uh, as we're doing live, so you you can hear what's happening in the gallery. And I was listening to the opening of the embassy, and I was listening to the American anthem, and I could hear the voice of Ivanka Trump. On behalf of the 45th president... And it was extraordinarily surreal, because I was listening to this, but what I was watching was something so different. I mean, from such another world, and I just, I couldn't reconcile the two. Thank you. And I think what's changed and what these protests have achieved um, is that 
you now have a cash injection uh, going into Gaza from Qatar, which is a paying salary. So the economy is is getting a breather, and also something very important is fueling the the power plant. So people are getting more electricity. So this is something that is you know allowed. It's it's approved by Israel. It's something that. The West Bank, the Palestinian Authority, there is not happy about.、It、gives you a sense of just how how sort of divided and crazy the situation is. Palestinian unity is as far away as ever. It's like a political tap. You know, I, I always find it amazing to watch. It's almost like water and clean drinking water and sanitation and electricity are bartered in Gaza、uh, when it comes to if you behave right, if you do what we want. We will allow you a little bit more electricity. We will allow you in more aid. We might set up、uh, some kind of sewage processing system, and I think this is the problem because in the long term, that's not going to solve anything. You know, the long term issues have not been solved. You know, a lot of the narrative of of, of the Israelis in 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 justifying their clampdown was that they were terrified that if they breached the fence, that people would go running to the border communities and kill Israelis. Well, a lot of people we spoke to will tell you that they would just run to go looking for a job. You know, sometimes you ask、uh, people in Gaza, particularly the youth, like if the border was open, what would you do? Most of them will tell you they would leave just because they want to. They want to work. So you also have this huge, untapped. Human resource available there. People who are desperate to work, and they're just not given the opportunity.、Uh, you have a broken people in Tiaz, and I think this was something that was so visible at the fence every single Friday. And I covered a lot of these Fridays, and you see kids, and I say kids because some of them are, you know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. They're still young. What do they know? What they do know is that they should not be living like this, and that the world doesn't live like this. I remember someone saying to me, "I just, you know, why are why are you allowed to live better than me?" And I didn't really have an answer. I was born into privilege, I guess, right? Born on the other side of the fence. The protests are still going on. People are still at the fence every Friday. They're going to be there the day this episode comes out. Is there a solution here? Can the situation in Gaza be solved? Well, if I had an answer to that,、uh, you know, I think the thing is, Hamas is not going to go away at this point in time, right?、Uh, who's going to? What's Israel going to do? They can't remove them. Israel doesn't want to run Gaza. The Palestinian Authority doesn't want to run Gaza.、Uh, and many people will tell you that actually Hamas is the best place to deal with security in Gaza. It's not an easy thing either. You do have groups inside Gaza that are, let's say, you know, far more、uh, extreme, if you will. Uh, than Israel views Hamas to be,、um, so I think it's a very difficult situation. I think Israel needs to decide how it's going to deal with Hamas. I think this is key,、uh, and then go from there. You, of course, have a very strong and personal connection to Gaza. You've been going there for most of your career.、Um, you've been there at some of its darkest days, whether it's war. Major political unrest, intense protests.、Uh, but tell me a little bit about the other side of Gaza, the other side of Gaza that you know.、Uh, that's outside of those extraordinary events. Yeah, it's true. Actually, we've been focusing on a lot of the negative, right?、Uh, making it sound like a complete、uh, terrible place. But the amazing thing about Gaza, and, and again, all these things we've spoken about are true, right? None of this is exaggerated. But the people. 
and you'll hear this, but it's it's because it's true. Like they're resilient, they're humorous. Uh, you know, you'll go to restaurants and you will eat beautiful fish. And the, I always say the sunsets, and I'm obsessed with the sunsets in Gaza because they are just so beautiful. And I remember actually very clearly coming back from that day on the 14th of May, the Embassy Day, and it was a tough day for all of us. And I stood, uh, I stood on my balcony, the sun was setting, and I took a picture and I posted on Instagram. And I wrote, I said, you know, it almost feels like the sun gives a little bit more of itself to Gaza because she knows that it is deprived of everything else. These are people trying to survive, right? These are people with families. There's love for their kids. And, you know, one day we, we did a story on a lifeguard just because we felt that we had to humanize the people of Gaza. We had to take them away from the fence. We had to take them away from burning tires and, and you know, the rhetoric of Hamas. And, you know, take them away from the politics and show them as the people that they really are. So, you know, you had Abu Ayman, who's a lifeguard, who was teaching little kids to swim and and I'm telling you I mean you're looking at glistening turquoise waters white sand a beautiful day even though the water is infested with sewage you know the, pe people should not have to endure this kind of a situation and 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 I think we who go into Gaza um uh, when you hear the rhetoric from the other side, from it, from this government in particular, about it's all a bunch of terrorists, and uh, you know that is something that I think is our job as journalists to fight. That you know, put the politics aside, put the Hamas aside. Um, don't forget there are 1.8 million people. You know, families, children, mothers, fathers, grannies, grandfathers, um, who just who 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 just want to be able to leave if they want to, or you know, go for a drive that lasts them longer than two hours. You know. So I think this is something that the world uh, needs to remember that they actually have a duty to allow these people to breathe. That's it from us on The Take this year. We'll be going on a short break, but we'll be back in 2019 with more stories and more frequent episodes. So keep an ear out. And while we're on hiatus, check out Al Jazeera's daily headline news podcast, Your World. It's available every day from 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time on smart speakers or wherever you listen. Thanks so much to everyone who's taken the surveys we've been sharing. There's one more. You can get to it by pulling up the show's description in the podcast app you're using. Click the link there and give us your feedback. Jasmine Bayumi produced this episode. She had production help from Morgan Waters, Kiana Mogadam, Dina Hezbe, and me, Imtiaz Tayeb. The show's lead producer is Graylin Bashir. The sound designer was Ian Koss. And special thanks to Stephanie Decker and Samir Garabea. We also want to recognize a few more people who helped make this first season of The Take. Thanks to Lacey Roberts, Jordan Marie Bailey, Meredith Hodanot, Julie Kane, Kezar Kampwala, Carlos Van Meek, Yasser Bisher, and everyone at Al Jazeera English and AJ Plus who helped us along the way.